Thanks for listening to the episode. Before we get started, just a word about the audio quality. Lieutenant Commander Rucker is currently serving in Italy, and so we had to record this episode remotely. I promise, the sound quality gets better. Hello, and welcome to It Will Behoove You, the only podcast dedicated specifically to how to get the most out of your military career. I'm joined today by Lieutenant Commander Rucker. Hello. Nice to talk to you again. Nice to talk to you as well. Lieutenant Commander Rucker is a cousin of mine, and we've both served very similar paths to some degree, starting enlisted and becoming officers, or Mustangs as they're called. What's your, what's your current position? You're in Europe right now, correct? That is correct. My current assignment is flag secretary, which for the Navy is sort of a office manager for, in this case, a two-star admiral. Mm -hmm. And the two-star admiral I work for is commander of Navy region, Europe, Africa Central, which is a fancy way of saying the admiral in charge of all of the Navy's installations throughout Europe, Northern Africa, and the Middle East. Okay. So Lieutenant Commander in the Navy would be equivalent to major if you are an Army, Air Force, or Marine type. Yeah. So you've done quite a bit. You've been in about 20-ish years, a little longer, actually. Um, why did you decide to join the military, the Navy specifically, and just an overview of kind of where you've gone and what you've done since you, since you enlisted? I'd be delighted. Well, as you mentioned earlier, I'm Lieutenant Commander Garrett Rucker. Lieutenant Commander in the Navy would be equivalent to major if you are an Army, Air Force, or Marine type. I grew up in Sacramento, California, and from an early age, I knew I wanted to be a part of something structured, something organized. I would say probably from the time I was around 12, I knew the military was the lifestyle for me. And we both have many relatives who served in the Air Force, including my father. I felt the Navy was a slightly better fit for me in terms of tradition, in terms of places you can go and things you can see. So I enlisted at age 17, and this was November of 1997. I became a yeoman, which is my rating or MOS if you're an army type, and, and yeoman are typically office workers. We handle records, pay, personnel security, sort of a general admin catch-all rating. And while I was enlisted, I was stationed in Japan, spent three years on a ship in Guam, and then returned back to the U.S. and spent several years in the Pacific Northwest. In 2010, I was selected for advancement to Chief Petty Officer, which is E7. And for the Navy in particular, E7, 8, 9 are our NCOs, non-commissioned officers. And we put our, our non-commissioned officers, our chiefs, in a very, very unique category. They wear officer-style uniforms with enlisted rank insignia. They have their own separate messing and birthing. And prior to joining the ranks of the chiefs, you go through a very intense sin rate weeds initiation process, mm -hmm. which 
is it's a very intense leadership course. You're deliberately overwhelmed and overtasked. And, mm -hmm. and the intent is to help you realize where your limits actually are, as opposed to where you think they are mm -hmm. and to be comfortable leading junior sailors. So okay. it's a very intense experience and one of the high points of my career. And we'll touch on that later in the program. Absolutely. In 2012, I was selected for commissioning under the Navy's limited duty officer program. Mm -hmm. More than most other services, the Navy recruits a lot of its officers from its enlisted ranks. And as a limited duty officer, I work primarily as an administrative specialist. So I will be the admin department head or flag mm -hmm. secretary or in some sort of administrative personnel type role wherever I go. Mm -hmm. And that, that was in 2012 and I've been moving steadily under the ranks ever since. One of the things that we try and highlight moves that we've made in our career, but also how non-traditional tactics are used for moving forward and other factors that may have played a part in your advancement. Hmm. All right. Well, to set the baseline, I think I should explain that for Navy enlisting, advancement all the way up through E6 is done primarily by exams. So twice a year in March and September, we have our semi-annual advancement exams where you are tested on general military knowledge as well as rating or job-specific level of knowledge. Mm -hmm. After the exams are completed, the scores are sent to Education and Training Command. All the scores are tabulated, and there's a complex calculation that uses your exam score, time and grade, any award points you've earned, and scores from your annual personnel evaluations. Mm -hmm. And it's all compiled into something called the final multiple. If your final multiple is above a certain number, you advance. Mm -hmm. If it is below that number, then you are considered to pass but not advance, mm -hmm. and you take the test again. Does everyone take the test all time or when you think you're ready for advancement? You take the test every time. There is a minimum, there's a minimum requirement of time and grade for each, for each pay grade. But once you meet mm -hmm. that requirement, you take the test and you keep taking the test until you advance. What effect does having bi-yearly tests affect your, your job on your free time? You're probably doing a lot of studying. I would say good Navy leadership incorporate the knowledge needed for the exam into your day-to-day -day routine. Okay. The yeoman. In the Yeoman rating, for example, there are multiple subordinate jobs that you do, mm -hmm. working on correspondence or personnel security or basic pay procedures. And a good leader will not only cycle their people through jobs on a regular basis so that you become a well-rounded sailor, mm -hmm. but also incorporate a short training period into each day where I personally like to bring it up as a conversation piece. Mm -hmm. Some people I know like a more formal, we're going to set aside 15 minutes and we're going to discuss this part of the job. Mm -hmm. And then we also encourage sailors to form study groups among themselves because mm -hmm. not 
it is a competition against each other, but not in a cutthroat way. Mm -hmm. The Navy as a whole benefits by sailors working together to share knowledge and become better rather than hoarding knowledge to themselves <laughs> in an attempt to kind of get a leg up. One of the things that I know I've dealt with and I've seen others deal with is sometimes your, your higher leadership doesn't necessarily pass muster if you get a bad leader or a leader who doesn't necessarily think about subordinate success quite as much as you were, that you were explaining. Is there something that you've seen lower enlisted do to improve themselves, like something to overcome or, or to work around not having that leadership directed growth to prepare for, for the testing? Well, I think I should start by clarifying my remarks a little bit. That final multiple I mentioned earlier is more than just your advancement score on the test. The score is a big part of it for sure. But another big part of it mm -hmm. is your personal evaluations that you receive every year. Oh, so does that end up playing out in a collaborative environment? Well, the test is Navy-wide and it's done by, by ratings or MOS. So, you know, for example, and I'm going to use some Navy terms here for a moment, a yeoman is not going to be competing directly against a bosun's mate for advancement. Those are two very different jobs and they'll have two very different tests. So we do absolutely encourage collaboration. Yeah. I apologize for my ignorance. The Navy is a blind spot. And I was like studying up and looking at the, the vernacular. I was like, oof, there's a lot to learn. <laughs> it's not embarrassing at all. Absolutely is. The, the advice that I give my junior sailors when they ask me, how do I advance is twofold. The first part is obviously study for the exam. But the second part is to do the best you can to ensure that you get solid evaluations. Got it. That makes sense. Okay. Um, helps focus someone's effort on their, on their career advancement. Sometimes people will create their own study decks or websites to, to help. Is there something like that that exists for the Navy? There are absolutely websites out there for studying for the advancement exam. There are manuals and now in this 21st century, they're all online. So you can download them and highlight them, look at them at your leisure. Mm -hmm. But I would say the best resource for advancement and just for life in general, and it's something we push very hard in the Navy, is having good mentors. Okay. We are very aggressive in the Navy about pushing mentorship. Mm -hmm. As a junior sailor, you are encouraged to find a mentor both inside your field and finding mentors outside your field so that you mm -hmm. learn more about the world around you. And when you become more senior, you are strongly encouraged to become a mentor as a way of paying forward everything that you've learned. Oh, wow. You said that it was massively pushed. How does that end up presenting itself? How do people go about finding either a mentor or a mentee under this, uh, this program? There's a lot of ways we do it. We address it at various points throughout a sailor's career. Mm -hmm. For instance, career development boards are actually mandatory for all junior sailors. And we do them at certain points in a sailor's tour. 
Mm -hmm. And one of the questions that invariably gets asked is, do you have a mentor and who is it or are they? <laughs> okay. I'm actually checking on it and making sure they can name someone. That's good. Absolutely. On the flip side of it, at the first class levels of E6, definitely the E7 level. And in certain categories of officers, you are encouraged periodically to make yourself available to be a mentor to somebody junior. As a limited duty officer, as a Mustang, it's part of our creed to recruit our reliefs. So always looking at motivated E6s and E7s because that's when you become eligible to apply for a commission as an, as an LDO and to talk with people at that sort of point in their career, what are your long-term plans? Where do you see yourself in three years, five years, 10 years? Have you considered the LDO program? Here are some of the things that we can offer in terms of career progression. Hmm. That's interesting. One of the things we're dealing with in the army right now is, is lack of retention, but also lack of recruitment. I think that if the army culture ingrained it, and it is at some levels in the military, there are certain command that is, has, has forethought would make that part of the culture. But I love that that's part of a part of, of the Navy's overall culture. Can you talk a little bit about, about how recruiting and retention is playing out in the Navy right now? Hmm. Let me think about that one for just a second. I know that oh. that's not necessarily something you would want to talk about. No, that's not it at all. Mm. Quite the contrary. I'm happy to. I just needed a second to collect my thoughts to deliver a cogent response. I actually did spend some time working in Navy recruiting. So I can say with some authority that recruiting and retention, at least as far as I've seen it, fluctuates a lot with the economy. Okay. So if the economy is booming and the job market is on fire, it can be a little hard to retain people after their first or second tour because it is, it is an easy lifestyle. It's not for everybody. And there's the belief that as the saying goes, the grass is going to be greener on the other side. Sure. Conversely, when the economy is bad, but things are a little rough. Mm-hmm. We tend to see longer lines metaphorically at the recruiting station and we tend to see sailors staying in longer. <laughs> Speaking of retention, having been overseas a number of years, I can say that we do have a pretty high retention rate. <laughs> the Navy has a program that we call the Overseas Tour Extension Incentive Program, okay. where if you agree to continue serving in an overseas location for an additional mm -hmm. year, we will offer you some sort of bonus, whether it's additional leave time, leave time with a ticket back to the United States, uh, oh. bonus, so on. And every time I've been stationed overseas, invariably, I'll see a flood of these requests come across my desk. For the extension. For the extension to stay both Navy and to stay at that duty station a year longer. I've well, heard, I've heard of struggles getting to, to some of the nicer posts. And now, now I think we know why no one's leaving. Well, yes and no. Well, yes, 
However, unlike the other services, the Navy is much more aggressive about moving people around. And correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it in the Army and Air Force, and to a lesser extent, the Marine Corps, if you are doing well in a certain location, you're going to stay at that location for four years, five years, or maybe even longer. Am I understanding that correctly? I can't speak to it with any direct authority, but anecdotally, there's a certain bases that are known as kind of black holes. One of which is Fort Hood in, in Texas. You'll put in for a change of location and you'll get the other side of the base. <laughs> <laughs> Conversely, you've spent time in the Northwest, Joint Base Lewis. I think for a lot of people, that's probably one of the best posts I've heard that sometimes it's hard to, to stay there. As they say, it's needs of the military, I suppose. Some, sometimes it works in your advantage and sometimes it doesn't. Circling back to the, the adventure that the Navy can bring to you, talk to me about some of the, the highlights of your career, some of the things that you've been the most proud of or that you've enjoyed the most. Okay. Well, that is a big question. I would have to say one of the, one of the highest moments in my career personally was when Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed as an LGBT sailor. Living under Don't Ask, Don't Tell was a challenge because I associate the Navy as a huge part of my identity mm -hmm. and to one day discover another part of my identity, which was in direct contrast to the first, it was a struggle. And of course, okay. there was the challenge of keeping both things separately or separate and the fear that should somebody see me with my partner or in a certain location, it might be an end to my career. So when that finally went away, it was a huge relief, but even more so the fact that at least as far as I could tell in the Navy, it was a non-event. Mm -hmm. One day it was policy, the next day it wasn't, mm -hmm. and as far as I could tell, nothing changed. <laughs> yeah, that, that tends to happen. I recall what happened in my own experience with the time that it transitioned. I also was directly affected by it being in place. One of our soldiers, we served together. We didn't talk about it. It really wasn't a big deal. But when we came home, it was probably one of the saddest moments in my military career was when we came home and we had that ceremony where we have a final formation. Everyone's family will come from far and wide to welcome this person home. But the soldier that I'm talking about couldn't have anyone waiting for him when he came back. His partner couldn't be there and share in that joy and excitement of, of the person returning from overseas. And, and that's always stuck, stuck with me. They have to laugh. There's so much wailing and gnashing of teeth. But then when it's implemented in the military, we repealing don't ask, don't tell or adding females to combat arms. But then when it's implemented in the military, I mean, there's, there was some pushback, but broadly my perception is that it was accepted. Nothing really happened. That was my perspective on it as well. And I love the fact that it's continued to be that way. Mm -hmm. Here in Naples, some young sailors recently formed a chapter of an organization that's starting to spread around the Navy called GLASS, which is Gays, Lesbians, and Supporting Sailors. Mm -hmm. And 
I was really impressed, one, by the motivation of these young sailors to form an organization. Because when you're a young sailor, you've got a lot going on mm -hmm. and it can be hard to find time to create an organization from scratch. Mm -hmm. But more so, I was really struck by the fact that a lot of the young sailors that are joining this organization uh, had no idea what Don't Ask, Don't Tell was. And having to hide who they were, mm -hmm. it, it never occurred to them that it might have had to be that way at one point. And mm -hmm. it's, I personally find it very inspirational and a harbinger of really good things for the future because it shows it shows truth to the fact that we are a meritocracy. Mm -hmm. If you are a good sailor, if you do your job well, then good things are going to happen to you. That's really powerful. And that's not everyone's experience throughout their career. So being able to, to be your true self and really be a better service member. I think it's great that the policy as it's applied allows for people to be a better version of themselves, to be a whole version of themselves and mm -hmm. then serve without reservation. Yes. Yeah. Your personal life. It's, it's just an inescapable part of service, whether it's your wife or, or who brings you lunch sometimes at work. It's, it's just inescapable because of the pernicious effects rippling down, being able to just make that a non thing. I, I can see that having a positive impact on who we have and, and who we retain too, to, to have that be one of your highest point. It's really great to dig into things that others can, can take away from the lessons that you've learned. Touch on what was the lowest point of, of your career? Where, where did you have to, to really dig deep or maybe consider that maybe, maybe it was time to take off the uniform? And how did you process that? How did you work through that? I would have to say the lowest point of my career was a particular tour. And I'd, I'd actually prefer not to say which one. But during this particular tour, there were a lot of challenges on a lot of levels, a lot of resource challenges, a lot of personnel challenges, a lot of shifting deployment schedules. and. My performance during that tour was not at the level I felt I could deliver, if that makes sense. I mean, to put it in plain English, looking back, I feel like that tour was a failure, which hurts personally because we all want to do well. We all want to succeed. We all believe we are capable of achieving great things. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you find yourself in a situation where you can try your hardest and still not get where you need to go. Absolutely. And accepting that, accepting that is really hard when you're in yeah. the moment, it, it'll make, you know, it, it'll make you cry. It'll make you scream and rage. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you have to recognize that you did your best mm -hmm. and take the lessons from it. We had talked 
a little bit about that, that transition becoming a, a chief petty officer. They, they put you to your limits, stress you to your limits and, and test your leadership under those conditions. Had you not had that experience yet? transition from being an E6 to an E7 or from an E6 to a chief petty officer, we actually call it initiation. Mm -hmm. And we do that for a reason, because it really is an exclusive fraternity mm -hmm. in terms of the Navy's non-commissioned officer community. Mm -hmm. I can honestly say it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Did the resilience that you took away help you process not meeting your own expectations? That particular instance happened after my initiation. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, the lessons I learned going through the chief initiation mm -hmm. have absolutely made me a better person. And they continue to be applicable every single day of my life. And not just in the Navy, but mm -hmm. as a person, I am a, I am a better person, a better member of society for the lessons that I learned going through that process. Yeah. I just, I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really learning as we go that perhaps everyone should go through one of those courses. We we've taken away a knowledge of ourself and a knowledge of our capabilities under unimaginable stress. And <laughs> it's, it, that's been one of the, the things that everyone's taken away from it is their ability to look at a scenario and say, I've, I've dealt with worse than this or be able to put it in context. And at the time it was hard to comprehend, but later on your ability to understand that I have the resilience to, to deal when you've tried your best and it still doesn't get you to that point that you wanted to be. Was there anything else that you took away from that experience that maybe you think others would, would benefit from in their own career? Well. I think the best lesson I could give from my time going through initiation, at least what helped me get through is that you're not doing it alone. Mm -hmm. I had, yeah. circling back to what we talked about earlier with mentors, mm -hmm. I had a great sponsor going through chief initiation, senior chief Mark Odin, mm -hmm. and I had friends who had been through the process, friends who hoped to go through the process, mm -hmm. whom I could turn to and vent or ask for advice. And they were always there for me. And the hardest part was reaching out. They were mm -hmm. always there. I just had to I had to be comfortable with reaching out and asking for that help. Give me a second, there's a plane. Okay. When I was part of Carrier Air Wing 17 from 2012 to 2015, when we were on deployment, my stateroom was directly underneath one of the jet blast deflectors, I believe it was for catapult oh number one. So anytime a jet would take off, they would roar to full power, directly overhead and you know like anything you learn to adapt so i quickly learned how to fall asleep with jets taking off with chains being dragged across the deck <laughs> with giant hydraulic rams turning on and off at all hours of the night hmm. just it's one of those things like after a while it just becomes part of the background noise 
Yeah, it is. It is strange how much you can actually learn to deal with. Uh, I lived next to a busy helipad. There'd be helicopters coming every 15 or 20 minutes, hopping around Iraq. This was basically a bus stop. When I moved home, I accidentally up living near a medevac hospital. And I was struck by how soothing it was to have these helicopters coming in. Depending upon the size of the ship, the motion of the ship at sea can be something that takes a little getting used to. For example, if you've ever been out to sea or on a lake in a small little boat mm -hmm. and you step back onto the pier, you know how there's a little part of you that feels like it's still rocking? Yeah. Imagine that after nine months or the fact that everything you own smells like jet fuel. <laughs> well, yeah, you especially because of where you were located. Especially on a carrier, but even on smaller ships, our destroyers and cruisers run on gas turbines, which are powered by jet mm. fuel. Ooh. So after a while, everything smells like JP5. Hmm. I've talked to some submariners and they have, they have a smell too. I can imagine <laughs> just in those conditions being so close. Yes, boat funk is real. Boat funk. <laughs> I think we found the title of the episode. So um, one of the things that I find that I want to learn about the people that I'm, I'm talking to is how does the service affect your family? You talked about some of the things that you had to deal with as far as your partner and, and especially living overseas. How has that affected your ability to, to carry on? I think there's going to be a couple of parts to this question or a couple of parts of this mm -hmm. answer. And I'll start with the family piece. I consider myself extremely blessed that my family has been very supportive of my military career. Mm -hmm. I've spent approximately a third of it overseas, Japan, Guam, Guantanamo Bay, and now Italy. And at every step, my family has made sure to take steps to make me to to ensure that I am remembered and I am loved. I talk to my mother on the phone probably every couple of weeks or so. If there's the exchange of gifts, holidays, I try to get home as often as I can. But there's also understanding of times I'm unable to come home, whether it's the cost of airfare or whether we're on deployment. There's a great deal of understanding. And from the family side, all of them take steps to make sure that I am as much a member of the extended family as possible. For instance, my mother, your aunt, mm -hmm. whenever her grandchildren are at the house, mm -hmm. she makes a point of showing them photos and, hey, this is your Uncle Garrett, and he's here, and he's in the Navy. And so the next generation, my nieces and nephews, all know who I am, and they know what I do so that when I am able to come home, it isn't, hey, who's this creepy ginger who just walked in the door? <laughs> this is Uncle Garrett, and we're so glad to see him. What are some adventure? You know, tell us about your adventures and that sort of thing. That's really good. And yeah, your, your family is, is particularly supportive and I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that that has made your service easier. It has certainly helped. Mm -hmm. I know, I know some have trouble with 
keeping connection with their family or some people have family members who perhaps disagree with military service for one reason or another, yeah. which is their, you know, that's their beliefs. Mm -hmm. I personally am am very grateful for the support I get from my family and the understanding that my career is going to take me places where I might not be able to be home for every Thanksgiving or Christmas or birthday, but that I am absolutely there in spirit. And I always try to be the good uncle and send cool gifts from wherever I'm at. If I may, there's actually a second part to the answer that I would really like to get into. Um, Go ahead. And it would, talking about people who have affected me, family obviously is a big part of that. Uh, but the friends and the shipmates you make along the way are, I would argue, just as important a piece. Mm -hmm. We were chatting online the other day, you and I, and I mentioned that for most of the Navy, the term shipmate is considered almost a pejorative. Like if a senior, if somebody senior sees you walking down the street and says, hey, shipmate, mm -hmm. it's usually going to be followed by some sort of corrective action. Mm -hmm. However, in all seriousness, the shipmates that you meet and the friends that you make along the journey, at least the ones that I have made along my journey, have had a profound impact on my life. In fact, I can... I have friends that I still maintain contact with from as far back as my first duty station in Japan in 1998. Uh, when you are thrown into a little metal ship that is, or a little metal ship that becomes your world mm -hmm. and the people that are out there with you become your family, you work with them, you eat with them, you sleep with them. When you pull into port, you go party with them. Mm -hmm. And when you're overseas, especially in an odd location where there's a big culture gap like Japan, Italy, or the Middle East, et cetera, mm -hmm. the, the, the sailors or other service members that are there with you, it's the same thing. They're, they're your family. They're your, they're your touch of home. Mm -hmm. So you tend to form very close bonds with these people. And they help you through the low points. Mm -hmm. uh, I have, uh, and this also ties back to the mentorship piece where I've had young sailors, I've had peers, I've had superiors mm -hmm. come into my office and just start talking about what's on their mind mm -hmm. because we have that closeness. We have that relationship. And as I said earlier, I still keep contact with at least one person from every command I've been at. And in fact, next month, I actually have the honor of, uh, I'm going to be the presiding officer for a former sailor's retirement ceremony. So I am flying from Naples to Pensacola mm -hmm. to be the presiding officer at her retirement ceremony at her request. Because the connection we formed while serving together is just that strong. Yeah, that must be really great for, for just quality of life. You know, I've always thought that in certain areas, the life that you have in the military is superior in many ways to civilian life. And that's probably one of those things that there's a culture that creates these bonds that 
serving under duress tends to create bonds stronger than somebody you went to school with or, you know, both love of the same football team or something. Um, it can, you know, but I would, I would be very careful saying that it's superior. It is certainly an intense connection, whether it's a foxhole or whether you are working on the flight deck together on a 10-month deployment. Mm-hmm. And the circumstances which created are certainly different than most you would find in the civilian world. Right. But superior, I don't know if I would say that because okay. we, and the reason I, I see that is because there is a cost associated with it. As you well know, you've deployed to uh, austere locations mm-hmm. and suffered the privations of being out there, just like any other service member. It comes with a cost. Mm-hmm. You are disconnected from your normal support network for a period of time. You you have left say in where you go, what you can do. Mm-hmm. And it can be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. But why do I feel drawn to it? Deployment. It's like it's like a, a bad relationship. You're like, oh, I want this, and then you realize, like, no, it was terrible. It was really bad, actually. Why do I want to go back? To In situations like that, I would, I would advise people to kind of lean into the adventure part of it. Mm-hmm. It it is it, it it's a struggle. Mm-hmm. And there are downsides to it. But as you say, it can be a unique experience. And at the beginning of the podcast, we talked about how the Navy is one of the more more adventurous services and that we just we see more of the world than right. most little folks. So, yes, it's a struggle where, you know, you're living on a ship and connectivity is limited and you're surrounded by 150 you know, people that you may or may not like all that much. Right. And you personally have very little say in where you go, what you do, the working hours are long, et cetera. Right. But, you know, one week you're up on the flight deck and the next, you know, launching jets. And the next week you're strolling through the Dubai mall. So it, it can be a great, it can be a, a great adventure. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I do think that, that has its own appeal. I, I had mentioned earlier that that is the Navy's differentiator. They, they had a commercial a while back, but it, it was pretty much go see the world. And for someone in like rural Iowa, I could, I could see an appeal to the Navy far and away better than some of the other services. So one of the questions I like to ask everyone, and I'm really excited to hear your answer. What's the best piece of advice you've received and from whom? Hmm. Well, I've received a lot of really good advice over the years. Well, let me think here. I think the best piece of advice and probably one of the catchiest pieces of advice I've ever received was from my last executive officer, commander, now captain, Richie Taylor. And he was fond of saying, do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And for me personally, I took that to mean don't do things you think are going to get you credit with others. Okay. Don't, don't volunteer to stay later. Don't take this particular job just because you think it's going to make you look good. Do it because in your heart, you believe it's right. An example would be 
especially in an, in a customer service administrative field like myself, you're getting ready to go home at the end of the day and you're tired and you're getting ready to lock up the door and the phone rings. Mm-hmm. You'd absolutely be justified in walking away. I'm off the clock. I can go. But you know on the other end of the phone is somebody who probably wouldn't be calling at that late hour unless they had a real problem that they were trying to get help with. Right. So you pick up the phone and you help that person with whatever it is that is hurting them. Mm -hmm. That's doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And before I left my last ship, I actually had him write it on a sticky note and autograph it. And I keep it in my current office just as a little reminder to myself that it's more important to do what you feel is right Mm -hmm. than what you think will gain you advantage. Sure, sure. I think that's a really great piece of advice. What uh, what was the runner up? What's the second best piece of advice you've received? Let me think. (laughs) I think it would have to be a piece of advice one of my earliest chiefs and NCOs gave me, and that was embrace the adventure. Mm -hmm. And I took that to mean that I should go in, that I should enjoy my, that I should allow myself to have fun. Mm -hmm. Because even when things are rough, you can still find something funny or absurd, something to make you smile. And it can be contagious. Yeah. And it can change not just your attitude about that particular moment in time, but it can also affect the people around you. And all of a sudden, whatever was keeping you down maybe doesn't seem so bad by comparison now. I think that's a really great advice. Embrace the adventure. I think that that's actually really good. One of the things we're seeing now as the military is learning to do more with less and we're transitioning specifically in the army towards a system that's more self-driven. What are some of the things that the future holds for, for the Navy or for the service? What is something that you see coming that we could prepare for or we should be looking at? Hmm. Well, that is an interesting question. What things do I see? Well, I could start by saying that the Navy is pursuing a trend of enabling individuals to process things themselves, particularly when it comes to pay and travel. We're moving into apps, which you can download over your phone, which will have guidance on travel requirements when you're PCSing, that is moving from one duty station to another. And we're moving from a decentralized sort of administrative network where every installation had a personnel support office to one central location where all of the pay personnel travel stuff gets managed and having that, having a helpline available for people to reach out to that office mm-hmm. and ask for help. So that's a structural change that we're seeing in the Navy. Mm-hmm. Also, deployments are getting longer mm-hmm. and the mission is changing. When I first enlisted, well, shortly after I first enlisted, 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. And that obviously had a profound impact on where we were needed. So for the next 20 years, 
most deployments were to the Persian Gulf and back. Right. And now that's starting to change again. And we're seeing more work in the Western Pacific and the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. And obviously I'm not an operations specialist, but it is something that we need to be aware of it, that our mission is changing and we need to be flexible to, uh, to accommodate that. Yeah. I've seen some of that. We're making a very clear transition to being trained for a near peer. The idea of the, the Russians coming, that was part of our doctrine. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing us go back towards that with, with a new bend, you know, one of the previous guests had talked about the, the really disruptive effect that drone small drones have had on both armor and personnel. I'm, I'm sure to some degree that's going to be a concern for, for the Navy. I appreciate learning from, from your career, getting to understand a little more in depth has really been, it's been a great experience. The concept here is, is sharing wisdom and helping others learn and grow from your experiences. Was there anything else that maybe we hadn't covered that you wanted to share? You thought listeners would benefit from? Hmm. Well, I think, I think the last thing I would offer, and again, this is advice that is great for the military, but also is absolutely applicable in the civilian world Mm -hmm. is to try not to be afraid of change. Okay. As you mentioned, as you mentioned previously, we are going through a lot of changes as a society Mm -hmm. and the military has historically been a reflection of society. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in certain, in certain instances has led the charge. I'm thinking specifically of executive orders to integrate the armed forces. Mm-hmm. You mentioned early women now serving in combat roles. I was mm-hmm. thinking about or, uh, early in the seventies and eighties when women were first allowed to serve on combat ships at sea. Mm-hmm. Now we have, we recently had a, a female become commanding officer of an aircraft carrier, which is milestone. Mm-hmm. We're seeing open service by LGBT service members. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, there's a lot of change and I would advise people to not be afraid of it and specifically to ask questions, to not be afraid to ask questions about other people's experiences. Okay. Former NCOs sat me down one day, we were on deployment and just out of the blue came into my office and asked me what it had been like being a gay sailor before and after Don't Ask, Don't Tell. When I asked him where this came from, he mentioned that he just wanted to understand other people's experiences and that morphed into my becoming very curious about his experiences as a black man, as a junior enlisted sailor, as a leader, you know, how, how that shaped his journey. And I absolutely encourage more people to do that instead of being afraid of, or not afraid, that's a poor choice of words, but instead of, instead of not understanding, Mm -hmm. don't be afraid to ask questions. Because each one of us has a unique set of experiences. And I've noticed that when asked about it, most people are eager to share that with someone else. And it ends up making 
everybody in the conversation a little bit better. That's really powerful. I appreciate you sharing that advice. I do think that's something everyone can take away as the society and as our mission changes. Thank you for taking time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. It's been a genuine pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks for listening. Go find us on social media at Behoove You Pod. If you liked the episode, share it with a friend. If you didn't like it, complain to a friend about how bad it was. Maybe they won't believe you and check us out anyway. We're searching for guests. Please message the show on social if you or someone you know has a great story about how they planned and executed their military career. 